Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, just uh, as we come to the end of the year, many of the giants of the faith, when you read their biographies or their diaries, they come to the end of a year and their thoughts are filled with self-examination and gratitude for God's goodness in the year past. And uh, I'm so grateful to the Lord for His sustaining hand uh, over the past year. There's so much to be grateful for uh, here in the body. I'm thankful and grateful for uh, the elder board, uh, of which I serve a part on, and uh, just the faithfulness of Andrew and Dane and Don and the joy of sharing leadership Uh, together with them and the harmony that God has given to us uh, through His Spirit. It really is a joy to serve you as the body here together uh, with those men. And, of course, very grateful for our members and your faithfulness uh, to the body, the many ways that you contribute to serve uh, the Lord and uh, to serve one another. Uh, It's a joy uh, to think back over a full year and see what God has done, uh, to see the faithfulness of His people, and also those of you who uh, are new to our assembly, who've come in this year, we're so grateful that the Lord has brought you uh, here to be a part uh, of what He is doing, what He is building uh, for His glory in this local body. Much to be grateful for as we stand on the threshold of a new year. Well, Mark chapter 9 in our text this morning is verses 33 through 37 as we consider what it is to serve like Christ. I'll pick up the reading here in verse 33. This is following Jesus' teaching on the cross. And Mark records, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, this passage is part of a larger portion that runs from verse 30 all the way down through verse 50. In verses 30 through 32 that we looked at the last time we were in Mark, Jesus is teaching his disciples for the second time about the cross. And for the second time, they don't get it. They don't understand. And the first time, and back at the end of chapter 8, Peter immediately uh, rebuked Christ and said, that won't be how it goes. Uh, You're the son of man. You're not going to die. And Jesus 
corrected him, rebuked him, and then taught about what it meant to follow Christ. And here again, in response to the teaching of the cross, the disciples immediately go into a discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Right after Jesus has said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of men to be killed. They go into a discussion of who will be greatest and, and start to look at other people with a critical spirit, which is what the next passage is about. And then in verses 42 through the end of the chapter, Jesus gives uh, an extended uh, uh, teaching about where the issue is. The issue is not with other people. The issue is the hearts of the disciples. And you can see the harmony of the passage and the passage that we're looking at this morning in verse 34, the issue at stake is that they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And at the end of this passage, in verse 50, Jesus concludes his teaching with these words, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so what's taking place here is that as Jesus is teaching his disciples, remember back in chapter one, when he called them, he said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so in this portion of scripture, we're seeing the continued development and discipleship of the apostles, the men that Christ has chosen to be the foundation of building his church as he makes them to become fishers of men. And that instruction in the cross for the second time once again reveals their need for growth. And so often this is the case in, in the life of those who follow Christ. We, we come to Christ. We trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're accepted in Christ. We're justified. Our position in Christ is that we are no longer guilty before God. Christ paid the price. We are followers of him. And yet... Even as we follow him, and as we're reminded of what he did to secure our redemption of the price that he paid, we see with grieved hearts how frequently pride surfaces in our life. And so this passage is, again, part of this larger portion of Scripture under the umbrella of the cross and sanctification, so we're looking at that broad theme, the cross and sanctification. Christ saves his people. He calls his people to follow him. We follow him. We're positionally guiltless in Christ. Like the thief on the cross, he believed in Christ and immediately he was guiltless before God because of Christ's work. That is the position of everyone who turns to Christ. And yet as we follow Christ, and wait to be home with him or for him to come, we grow in learning about what it means to have the mind of Christ, to have the affections of Christ, to be like Christ as we live in, li in this life. And that's the nature of progressive sanctification. So we're looking at that broad umbrella, the cross and sanctification as, it, it's, as it's working out 
and the lives of the disciples, the lives of those who are called specifically to follow Christ for the unique work that they will have in establishing the church, and yet in their growth, we see the same pattern for all those who follow Christ. In this passage, uh, earlier this morning, uh, Pastor Dodd asked if I was ready. I said, well, you know, we're going to be preaching on something I'm really good at, pride. Not humility, pride. And in this passage, we find that pride is at the heart of the disciples' problem. And while Jesus is calling them to serve him, to follow him, pride is what keeps them from serving like Christ. Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, God reminds us that we have to constantly deal with the issue of pride in our hearts. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." And being found in the likeness of men, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To serve like Christ at its core, at its foundation, means to have the same mind of humility that Christ had. Paul wrote what he did in Philippians because the Philippians needed to be reminded of that. James also reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in the next epistle over in your Bibles, Peter in chapter 5 writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sadly, grievously, pride surfaces in the lives of followers of Christ. Right? Pride keeps coming up in our lives like moles in our yard. You can't get rid of it. It keeps surfacing. And pride keeps you then from serving like Christ. And so as Christ is preparing his disciples for their ministry, he faithfully dealt and deals with their spiritual immaturity and pride. This, this is discipleship. It's recognizing that even as we follow Christ, we have to consistently be growing in Christ. We have to be consistently confronted with our propensity to sin, with our propensity to walk in the flesh. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Lord, here's my heart. Take and seal it for thy throne above. We know what this is to be confronted with our pride and to need to grow. And again, the disciples and Jesus' work with the disciples shows how slow we are to grasp 
the, the spiritually significant things of the Lord. This is the second of three cross discussions in Mark. Remember the first one was at the end of chapter 8 when at, right after Peter confessed Christ, Jesus began to teach about the cross. Then we're here in, in, in chapter 9 where again Jesus has taught about the cross and the response is to argue about who is the greatest. And if you look over at chapter 10 in verse 32, You have the third occurrence of Jesus teaching about the cross in verses 32 through verse 34. And in verse 33, Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And what's the response, well, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Three times Jesus teaches on the cross. And each time the response is, is evidence of the slowness of the disciples to grasp the significance of what Jesus is teaching. Even after the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 9, when Peter and John come to the tomb, you know, they're just befuddled because Scripture says they didn't understand the Scriptures yet that Jesus had to rise from the grave. And so in the disciples, we see this slowness to learn, and yet we see the patience of Jesus to continue to teach his disciples, to continue to deal with their flesh and their pride and prepare them for service, to make them become fishers of men. And so this passage displays the pride of the disciples again, in light of the teaching of the cross. And it demonstrates how Christ dealt with the disciples to prepare them for service. Pride, and the theme today is that pride keeps you from serving like Christ. But what we find in this passage, too, is that Christ deals with our pride out of his mercy and grace. And on this side of the cross... On this side of the cross, what a joy it is to know that even as we are confronted with our pride, with our fleshly pride, on this side of the cross, we have the joy and the assurance of knowing that all of our pride and all of the sinfulness that is generated by our pride, Jesus paid for that in his death. And God accounts us as righteous despite our struggles with sin, despite our struggles with pride. God accounts us righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. He accounts us as forgiven on the basis of Christ's redemption of his suffering for our sins on that cross. And that is essential to understand even as we look at this issue of pride that so often surfaces in the lives of those who follow Christ. 
As we're convicted, we confess our sin, but we confess our sin with joy in the sense that Jesus paid it all. And there's nothing that I can do to compensate for my sin. Jesus paid it all. I just turn and repent of my sin. And by his grace and through his mercy and his strength and the spirit of God at work, continue to pursue a humble life and humble service to the king. And before we get into the outline, just one appeal this morning to anyone who's here who is outside of Christ, who is dead in your trespasses and sins, who in your pride you are rejecting Christ. Maybe you're rejecting Christ because you think you can earn favor with God. That's simply the expression of your pride. You can't. Your debt is infinite. Turn to Christ. Follow Christ. Rest in Christ. Know that only in Christ do you have forgiveness of sin. Only in Christ is there rest for your soul. Well, as we follow Christ, sadly, Pride does keep us from serving like Christ. Well, let's look at the passage here is what happens after Jesus teaches about the cross. The disciples are on the way further south in Galilee. Before uh, this passage at the Mount of Transfiguration, they were in the northern part of Israel and they're working their way south through Galilee into Capernaum, likely Peter's hometown, on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to where Christ will die. And as they're walking, they're having a discussion among themselves. And Jesus asked the piercing question, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that your words often betray the pride of your heart. Your words often betray the pride of your heart. And as subpoints, there are three characteristics of proud words that we'll look at. Proud words dismiss Jesus' teaching. Proud words put down other people. And proud words infect followers of Christ. So again, the main point, our first main point of consideration this morning, your words often betray the pride of your heart. And such words, proud words, dismiss Jesus' teaching. Proud words put down other people. And proud words infect followers of Christ. Remember, again, the disciples had just heard the teaching of the cross, and yet they did not understand. They weren't grasping the significance of what Jesus was saying. They hadn't grasped the significance of what Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 34, when calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
These, these words are words that, that pierce the heart and should address the pride of our hearts, and yet here the disciples are, having been taught about the cross, having been given an explicit statement of what it meant to follow Christ, to deny their sovereignty, to take up their cross, to set aside what is valuable in this world, to put it in Paul's words, to consider rubbish everything I thought I had, And their reaction is to have an argument about who is the greatest. They dismiss the teaching, this time not through a direct rebuke like Peter did when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, not so, Lord. But in their ensuing discussion, they evidence that they've dismissed the significance of what Christ has taught that it means to follow him. And pride so often does surface with this kind of subtlety, does it not? Yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Well, what do your words say about how you're responding to what Christ says, to what Christ says it means to follow him? Their discussion, their discussion is evidence that they have not assimilated the teaching of Jesus. They haven't grasped the significance of denying sovereignty of self and of valuing the things of the world. Now, eventually, they would grow in that. And even John himself in second John or first John chapter 2 would tell us you know you got to stop loving the world folks he didn't say that in a vacuum he said that because he also had to learn that he had to learn that his heart propensity in following to Christ was to keep on loving the world and valuing what the world values instead of taking seriously the teaching of Jesus Our proud words dismiss Jesus' teaching. And our proud words also put down other people. You know, here are the disciples. They've dismissed God's word. They're so slow to grasp what it means to follow Christ. And and this is how this is how sin works. We you know, we come to Scripture, we read Scripture, and then we kind of go we go our merry way. And, and in our guilt, perhaps in our subconscious sense of guilt, in our pride, we attempt then to minimize our own sin by maximizing comparative greatness with those around us. So the disciples, you know, they're, they're following Christ, and, and just before this, they had even failed to, to serve Christ effectively as they couldn't cast out a demon. And yet, now here they are on the road arguing about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. Their proud words, they're putting, in their proud words, they're putting one another down. Now, what did a discussion like this sound like? Well, Typically in Jewish culture, this kind of argument about greatness in the kingdom of God centered around one of two uh, issues, either one's ability 
to keep the law in a very stringent manner, or the blessing of God in one's life in the wealth that they had accumulated. The wealth, the success was attributed to being blessed by God, right? You know, hashtag blessed. And so often those discussions would be, well, you know, I've kept this. Did you keep that? This this is how I kept the Sabbath day, right? By not opening the refrigerator so the light wouldn't go on. I mean, it was that ridiculous at times. Tithing mint and cumin while rejecting the greater things of the law. Well, my dad has a great fishing empire, Peter, James and John say to him. Well, we're in my house, Peter says. And please note, this is not recorded in Scripture. Just trying to give us an idea, perhaps, of what the argument was like. It was one-upping. Who's the greatest? Who's going to have the greatest privileges? You know, this spirit, this spirit runs through the church and is addressed multiple times in the epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, for instance, Peter, when it, or Paul, when dealing with, with those that had come in and created a following away from the truth, he says about those uh, those false teachers, he said, they measure themselves by one another and they compare themselves with one another and they, were, they are without understanding. And he's capturing the, the propensity of, of what we do. We, we don't like to put our, compare ourselves with the standard of the law of God. We don't like to, to compare ourselves with the standard of what God has revealed true righteousness is. And so we bring the standard down to something we think we can accomplish and then we compare ourselves with other people and try to put ourselves in a better position based on our own man-made faulty standard. MacArthur comments about those teachers in 2 Corinthians that they invented false standards that they could meet then proclaimed themselves superior for meeting them. Proud words put down other people. This is the nature of our heart. We we establish things in our own lives and think, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And it's all externals. And then we project our own standard on other people and judge other people by the standard we project on them. They're arguing about who is the greatest. And this way of thinking goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because at its heart, at its heart is a realization that we can never meet the standard that God has set, that we've sinned against God. But you know what? My sin isn't as bad as your sin. Well, yes, but it was the woman you gave me. Well, yes, but it was the serpent. The argument of one-upping, the argument of putting people down, it goes all the way back to the garden 
It goes all the way back to the fall. And here among the disciples, it's reversed. They're not, they're not uh, just saying I've sinned, but it's not as bad as the next person. They're saying I'm great, but self-exaltation by definition puts down others. If I'm putting myself up, I'm putting you down. And so proud words put other people down. Proud words dismiss Jesus' teaching. Proud words put other people down. And proud words also infect followers of Christ. In verse 34 again, notice what it says. On the way, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. This argument is happening among those who have left everything to follow Christ. Men who have even done mighty works in Jesus' name. Jesus sent them out and they accomplished great things in the name of Christ. They were were following Christ and yet among one another, they're having this discussion, who is the greatest? It brings to mind James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. With it, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so, be, not, not so to be. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Oh, our tongues so often betray the pride in our heart, even as those who are following Christ. Again, we see this in the epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is dealing with divisions that have come in the church, and and what, what is the source of the division? Well, some people are saying, well, I'm following Paul. Why? Because, well, that makes me look good. I'm following Apollos, I'm following Cephas, and and Paul says, what are you thinking? Did Paul die for you? How can you possibly make these divisions among yourselves? And and look at where he lands with this. Turn to to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He holds up the cross of Christ to deal with their divisiveness, to deal with their proud words. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, he he said, "I'm, I'm writing to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, they've been set apart in Christ, and yet, and yet, these proud words have found a place within their body. Proud words in fact, the followers of Christ. And where does Paul go with that? Well, look at verse 26. As he deals with the pride that has surfaced in the church of Corinth, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, look, there's a reality within the church that proud words have infiltrated the fellowship. And the answer is, look to the cross. Look at what what you were outside of Christ. Look at God's grace to you in Christ. And if you boast, make your boasting in one thing, the Lord, from whom you receive every good gift and without whom you are nothing. Your words often betray the pride of your heart. And oh, how much how desperately we have to guard against the pride of our heart, even in our assemblies. You know, when I, when I think about truth, community church, I think about a congregation who is, who is marked by humility. I see how you serve. I see how you love one another. I see your eagerness to follow Christ. And yet when we look at Scripture, we have to to assume because Scripture tells us that we're all dealing with pride. And we have to guard against pride pride in our conversations, in our comparisons. You know, how easy it is to walk into church and, and you know, if, if we're thinking in the flesh, we just look around and start unconsciously comparing ourselves with other people. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not even going to try to make a list. But it's the reality of our heart And so to protect the unity, to protect the harmony of the assemblies of God, we have to recognize what is part of our flesh, what the scripture says, this is what you struggle with, and deal with it before the Lord Jesus. Our words often betray the pride of our heart. Let's look secondly this morning that Jesus holds you accountable for your words. Jesus holds you accountable for your words. Still in the beginning of the passage, going to the first verse of the passage, as they're coming into Capernaum, Jesus asks this probing question, what were you discussing in the way? Silence. What is happening? Well, Jesus is being gracious and kind to his disciples and dealing with their words. He's bringing them to account to what they've said with this question. What were you discussing on the way? And in his kindness, Jesus deals with you now. Think about that question for a moment. What were you discussing on the way? Expand it. We're at the end of a year, and typically at the end of the year is a time of assessment and valuation. So on your way through 2023, what were you discussing? On your way 
to and from work, well, maybe you were by yourself, so you weren't discussing anything. You're off the hook there. At the dinner table, what were you discussing? On your way to church, what were you discussing? Jesus does not ask this question because he does not know. Jesus asked this question to let the weight of your words in his presence settle on your conscience. What were you discussing? And it's easy for us when we think about that to think, well, you know, oh, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I had a reason for saying that. Well, let's let the word of God be the standard for assessing our words. Think about what Psalm 19.14 says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So put those together. What were you discussing? And what's the standard? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what was I discussing? And how does it measure with the Lord, with what is acceptable in his sight, with what ought to characterize a follower of Jesus Christ, the epitome of humility. Jesus holds you accountable for your words and and he deals with you now in kindness. Can I just say that this was a very unpleasant sermon to prepare? You know, you come to these passages and you just think, ugh. But it's the next one, so I need to submit to the flow of of Scripture. But it's a kindness. It's a kindness. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus says this, I tell you on the day of judgment that people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's going to be an accounting for your words. Now or later. Jesus in his mercy says, what were you discussing? Now so that we can turn to him and deal with the pride of our hearts through his perfect and completed work. He deals with us now and he knows the content of your speech. When he asked the question, what was the answer? They kept silent. But then the Holy Spirit tells us what the content was. They were discussing who was the greatest And what does Jesus do? Even without an answer, he deals with the content of their speech. Why? Because Jesus knows the content of your speech. Jesus is the audience of all your conversations. There's not a word that you utter 
that Jesus is not aware of. And again, that goes back to what he says in Matthew 12, that there is going to be an accounting for every careless word we speak. Jesus is the audience. It doesn't matter whether you're in a dark room. It doesn't matter whether you're in the bottom of the sea or in the highest of heavens. Jesus is there. Jesus hears. He is the audience of all your conversations. And in his holding us accountable for his words and dealing with us now and recognizing that he knows the content of our speech, Jesus asked this question not, not for a aha, I gotcha moment, but because Jesus intends to change you now. He deals with the pride of our hearts to change our conversation. Again, when Jesus called the disciples, he said that he would make them to become fishers of men. And so when when we have these accounts of Jesus dealing with his disciples, that's what is happening. And how encouraging this is for us that true followers of Christ are not defined by their perfection, they are defined by their responsiveness to their master. So how do you respond when Jesus deals with the pride of your heart, when he asks those probing questions. We take responsibility for our sin. Do we grieve over our sin? Is our repentance a repentance not of, oh, I got caught, but of, oh, I've grieved my Lord. So many epistles deal with the tongue. Colossians or 4.6 tells us that our conversation needs to be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we might know how to answer everyone. James, go ahead and turn to James. We, we can't talk about our speech without looking at James. Look at James chapter 1. If you're looking for a great passage to memorize in the coming year, James 1 would be a great place to start. In James 1, we have a number of the the, the themes that James will fill out in the subsequent chapters. But one of the, at the end of the passage, or the end of the chapter in James chapter 1, one of the marks of people who hear the word of God and take the word of God to heart who are not just hearers but doers of the word of God one of the marks is what happens to their tongue so look at verse 26 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless so James puts it in a negative, in a negative sense. If, if you're hearing the word of God and yet it's not affecting your words, you're proving yourself to not be a follower of Christ. Because followers of Christ who value the word of God as the word of God is taken in and assimilated, it will change how they talk. And in chapter 3, where he deals extensively with the tongue, 
Verse 2, for instance, for we stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And he identifies the, the problem is that we're, we're so often influenced by the, by the forces of hell. The tongue is set on fire by hell. And the answer to that is to pursue the wisdom that is from above. And so at the end of, of James chapter 3, James gives us a contrast of the wisdom from of below and the wisdom that is above. And this is what he says. Now let me just read the whole passage beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James connects the operation of our tongue with the affections of our heart. If there's a heart that's set on wisdom, if there's a heart that's set on godliness, then it will be reflected in what we say as we seek to sow, uh, as we seek to produce a harvest of righteousness by sowing peace as peacemakers. And, and that's exactly where Jesus ends this whole passage back in Mark in chapter 50. Be at peace among yourselves. And so as he's addressing the the proud words of the disciples, he's doing that with the intent to change them, to help them see what's going on in their hearts. And that's how Jesus kindly deals with his followers. Paul exhorts the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. How desperately we need God's grace to deal with our proud and destructive words, but praise the Lord that Christ calls us to account so that we can grow and learn to serve like Christ because of the cross. Because when the conviction comes for our proud words, when Christ holds us accountable on this side of the cross, we run right back to Christ and we cling to his finished work. Jesus holds you accountable for your words. And then third this morning, let's notice that Jesus addresses the pride of your heart. Your words... Your words often betray the pride of your heart. Jesus holds you accountable for your words, and Jesus addresses the pride of your heart. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. There's a significance in that statement. Jesus here is not standing in judgment. He's sitting and teaching. He's addressing the pride of his disciples by teaching them 
the way of humility, the way of following him, what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. He addresses the pride of your heart. He does this with a principle. Look at what he says in verse 35. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In that simple statement, Jesus completely flips the perspective of worldliness about greatness. The world says to be great, you have to be noticed. To be great, you have to be served. To be great, you have to put down everyone else around you. And Jesus says, no, this is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works in this way that if you're going to be first, you must be the last of all and you must be the servant of all because that is what Christ is. The son of man, the ruler of all, the one who sustains all things with the word of his power, he is going to be delivered over into the hands of men to be killed. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. If you're going to be first, you're going to be last of all and servant of all, like Jesus, the one you're following. You could put it in this way. It's way too simple, but maybe memorable. For the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way up is down. It just occurs to me, and I wish I had this in my notes. I don't. But in some of the reading I did this year, I read a a book by a a Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink, and he describes the life of Christ as a downward spiral, the whole life of Christ. He set aside his glory and took on flesh. And as he went through life on this earth and ministry on this earth, the opposition grew and grew and grew until he was put to death and laid in a tomb. The whole trajectory of Christ's life on earth was downward, the least of all, the servant of all, unto death. And how how awfully presumptuous it is for followers of Christ to think in some way, if I follow Christ, I'm going to have things go well in this life as the ultimate end of following Christ. No, that's not how it works. Oh, they go well for us. They go well for our soul. But like Paul says, you know what, my, my outer tent is wearing away. It's, 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 it's going away. Following Christ is not easy. It's to be a servant of all, to be the last of all. It's to deny the principles of the world and say, I'm not here to become great in the world's eyes. I'm here for one reason, to serve the Christ who redeemed me and to model my life after him and him alone, whatever the cost might be. 
It's not a discussion of what I've accomplished. It's not a discussion of what people need to do for me. It's a discussion of what Christ has done for me and how I can be an effective servant of my Lord with those that he's put around me. I'm not, I'm not looking at other people for what they can give. I'm looking beyond to Christ, to the Christ that I serve. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. That's the principle. And then Jesus addresses the pride of our heart with a picture. Verse 36, and he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The picture of Jesus, a small child, which when you think about what the standard for greatness was in the Jewish mind, a child was not great. The Jews looked at children as those who could not keep the law. They were maybe overstating it, but disposable. They had no position in society, right? This wasn't the child-centric age that we live in now, the child-worshiping age that we live in now. But Jesus uses, takes this child, this, this one that is repudi- that has no reputation, no place in society, could have been one of Peter's chi- children. That's one of the speculations that commentators put out there. And he takes him in his arms. The son of God, the son of man, God in flesh, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who Mark says is the beginning of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who's greater than Caesar. And he takes a child in his arms. And the picture is really beyond what we can fully comprehend. The lesson, don't, don't discuss greatness. Embrace the least of God's people. That had to be just burned on the, on the minds of the disciples. Here is Christ embracing the least. And, and, and in their minds, you know, in that culture, where if, well, if, I, don't, if I don't have the, the structure of the culture for greatness, you know, now I'm vulnerable. If, I, if I'm embracing, if I'm embracing and, and serving people who have no repute in, in, in the culture, all of a sudden I'm vulnerable now. This is why we, we are so uh, insistent on proclaiming our own greatness because if, if we don't put forward our greatness, we realize how vulnerable we are. And so Jesus addresses the pride of our heart with the promise, well, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And whoever receives me receives not him, or not me, but him who sent me. 
You receive one who has received Christ. You receive one who is in Christ. No matter how least they seem to be in the kingdom of God, you receive Christ. You receive the one that indwells that least in the kingdom of God. To receive a child of the king is to receive a king. And for the disciples, for the disciples, here they are as the emissaries of Christ, as the ones who will build the foundation of the church. But how, how did they, how did they gain that position? Because Christ embraced them. And in that picture and in that promise, Jesus is expressing what their position is. They were the least and they were received by Christ. Yet because they were received by Christ, they belonged to him and they needed to treat one another as those who were received by Christ and not look for stratification in their midst. Romans 5.8 reminds us that Jesus saved us when we were sinners. And the, to summarize what Jesus is teaching here, it, it, it very simply is this, you are the least. You are the least, so receive the least. Jesus receives you. He received you as someone who is helpless, who has, as someone who had nothing to offer. How dare you? How dare you proclaim your greatness? You are the least. Receive the least. Greatness in the kingdom does not come by comparison among yourselves, but by commitment to your king, by serving others as he served. It's not tied to your accomplishments. Greatness relates entirely to Christ the king. Christ received you into the kingdom based on nothing in you, and therefore you receive others based solely on their confession of Christ. There's no basis when we look at the picture and the principle that Jesus is, is teaching as he addresses the pride of the heart. There's no basis for stratification in the kingdom of God. Even the spiritual gifts that God gives to his people are given by Christ according to his will and are the, are the reflection of his power as the risen king of kings. It's a reflection of his authority. So those who hold more visible positions in the church, it has nothing to do with rank based on personal worthiness. It has everything to do with Christ and his power and his resurrection. And so with joy, we receive one another as Christ has received us. And pride, the pride that keeps us from serving like Christ Pride attempts to establish distinctions, to compare ourselves among ourselves. Humility, humility that reflects the mind of Christ erases those distinctions by viewing ourselves and viewing one another based solely on the purchase price, the blood of Jesus Christ. The pride of your heart and what true greatness, according to Christ, looks like 
all bring us back to the cross of Christ. Your words expose your pride. My words expose my pride. We desire greatness in a way that bypasses our sin. But Christ died to redeem us. And when we come to the cross, we recognize there's no grounds for boasting. There's no grounds for boasting. I have nothing to be proud of. I need the forgiveness that Christ offers for my pride. And I need his strength to serve as he served in giving himself up for me. Well, as we close this morning, turn to one other passage in the epistles, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul brings this together in instructions that he gives to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters, he has reminded them of their position in Christ. And in chapters 4 through 6, he teaches them what it, what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. And look at verse 29. This is what it looks like then to walk in a manner, to serve one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And the, the, the thought carries on into chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. No corrupting speech, grace-filled speech, is connected all the way down to walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Pride, pride keeps you from serving like Christ. But in Christ, we're at liberty to lay down our lives, to lay down our need of self-promotion, to lay down our life for the sake of Christ, to resolve, to put away pride through repentance, that our theme and life would be that of Paul. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Father, we thank you today for the joy that we have in knowing that our sins are forgiven when we turn to Christ, that he paid, he paid the price 
of the infinite debt that we could not pay because of our pride and our sin and our rebellion against you. And we praise you that in Christ we are free to serve, to serve you and to serve one another in a way that reflects our Lord. And oh God, we pray that as we look ahead at the coming year and as we look at the coming afternoon, that we would walk in a way that reflects the mind of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We need your help. We need his help. Spirit of God, we need your help to do that. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.